Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of Sydney Hegley, led by Amy LeBlanc. My name is Ben Berman-Gan, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this episode, Amy and Sydney discuss the literature of small-town Canada, intergenerational migration, and the strange beavers that occupy Sydney's short story collection, The Pump, as well as navigating publishing community and being nominated for literary awards. Amy LeBlanc is a PhD student in English and Creative Writing at the University of Calgary. Amy's debut poetry collection, I Know Something You Don't Know, Gordon Hill 2020, was longlisted for the 2021 Relit Award and selected as a finalist for the Stephen G. Stevenson Award for Poetry. Her novella Unlocking, University of Calgary Press 2021, was a finalist for the Trade Fiction Book of the Year through the Book Publishers Association of Alberta. Amy's most recent book, Home Bodies, with Great Plains Publications 2023, is a collection of interconnected gothic short stories. Her next poetry collection, I Used to Live Here, is forthcoming with Gordon Hill Press in 2025. Sydney Hegley is the author of The Pump with Invisible Publishing 2021, winner of the 2022 Relit Literary Award for Short Fiction, and a finalist for the 2022 Trillium Book Award. Their essays have appeared in Catapult, Electric Literature, Event, and others. Their novel, Birdsuit, is forthcoming with Invisible Publications in spring 2024. And their essay collection, Bad Kids, is forthcoming with Invisible in fall 2025. They live with their husband and French bulldog on Treaty 13 land, Toronto, Canada. I'm joined today by Sydney Hegley. Thank you so much, Sydney, for joining me. How are you doing? Thank you, Amy. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be chatting with you. Excellent. So today, I'm really excited for the opportunity to interview today because I'm a big fan of your work and we work with a lot of this, a lot of similar themes. Um, so I want to talk about uh, a pretty broad range of your work because you do write fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry. And it's not common to find people that are so well-versed um, in that many different genres. 
So to start us off, I want to talk about your, your biggest work to date. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your Relit award-winning short story collection, The Pump. Sure. So The Pump was published in 2021 with Invisible Publishing, uh, and it's a book of interconnected short stories in the Southern Ontario Gothic tradition about a small Ontario town called The Pump with a tainted water supply that causes the beavers in the town to eat people, but the people are mostly worse than the beavers. So it's kind of okay. And it's got a lot of environmental conversations and conversations around queerness and trauma and memory and family and stuff like that. Amazing. I definitely want to talk to you about the beavers because yeah. there's there's such a fascinating part of this book. And this is my second time reading it. And I remember the first time just like I could not get these beavers out of my head. And part of it is that they, they feature so prominently on that absolutely gorgeous book cover that you have where it's difficult to not picture these beavers just kind of lying there in a bathtub watching you. They know everything that's happening. <laughs> no, I um, got I got yeah. very, very lucky with the artist Jeremy Bruniel from London, who actually had an original painting of his that he made for the book cover. It's actually very, very large in real life. How and big he is has it? shrunk it. Like wall-sized, I would say. It's oh, very big. okay. That would be exciting to see in person. Not that I can afford it, but... <laughs> but you wish you could. <laughs> yes. No, no, exactly. The book is good enough at this point, so it's good. You have a little tiny version of it. Yeah, oh, that's so fascinating. Um, and I was wondering as well, because you said that it launched in 2021. Um, I wondered what it was like for you um, to launch your book kind of very firmly during the COVID years. Yeah, so strange. It's interesting because we're definitely still in the COVID years is what it feels like. But at the point that I launched, it was September 2021. And I didn't feel comfortable having an in-person launch as of that point yet. But it was at the point where people were getting really tired of online launches and not a lot of people were showing up to them. So we kind of had to get really creative about types of the events that we were doing. I had, I did a lot of like press appearances and interviews and like different, different questions and different kinds of events that weren't really reading based at the time. And I did definitely miss out on that kind of typical launch experience that people talk about like in person in a bookstore or something like that and kind of lost that opportunity to sell the books in person at that point and so the, the effect that that kind of had was interestingly enough I've sold more of the book in 2022 than I did in those first few months of 2021 which is unusual when a book comes out especially for an indie press and I think part of that has been the award circuit stuff, but I think a lot of it has been I've been able to go do more in-person events like the Toronto Word on the Street Festival and like Fold and stuff like that. And I've been able to go into some readings finally in person, like safely masked and stuff like that and do a little more traveling out of my circle. Um, and I've been able to like physically sign books and hand them to people and you, you underestimate, I think, how much that really sells your book, but it's every every hook handed to someone uh, really counts in that way. 
It does. And there's definitely nothing like having the author there signing it and even having like a face and a, and a personality to kind of pair with the book. You mentioned the award circuit as well. And I didn't mention earlier, but this book was a finalist for the Trillium Award as well, yeah. right? What was yeah. that like? Very, very strange because I I was nominated with a bunch of people who were very well seasoned, like incredible, incredible writers. Um, and so I did a few like word on the street events with them and a few interviews with them. And it was just so odd sitting beside everybody like Brian Francis and Catherine Graham and these people who have so many books under their belt who were more used to it than I was I think like it was my first book it was my first like foray into the publishing world especially in Canada and I'm quite young compared to a lot of the authors I do events with so it was definitely interesting and wonderful and terrifying and I just felt so lucky to be there and what was the greatest about it was that I really wasn't expecting at all and because I was up against people who were so incredible that I was just like I'm happy to be here and this is the big greatest thing ever and it's then nice I got, when you can say that and mean it a, a, like a thousand percent I was just so happy to be there and so humbled and so like I felt so deeply lucky to get to learn from these other writers and at the awards ceremony itself that was really cool because it was my first literary event since my book had come out at all and I did like a little CBC interview and it was just like a really really cool really awesome experience and when Anne Shin won, I was just so, so absolutely thrilled for her. And then she came over and she hugged me and she went, I thought it was going to be you. Wow. And I was like, oh no. And I knew it was going to be you. <laughs> but it was really um, quite incredible. It was very cool. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like an incredible experience. And like you said, to be like a young writer, first book, that's probably something that you'll just remember forever. And as oh, you publish yeah. more books and go to more award ceremonies and, and are nominated for more incredible things, there's not going to be anything quite like that first one, probably. Well, especially. I, I, I mean, what's fun about it is like, I don't know if everybody else with a first book sort of feels this way, but I sort of see everything that's happened with it as this like really amazing happenstance luck. I obviously wrote a book and put a book out and put my heart and soul into it but it, it's even strange that like people read it who I don't know <laughs> like every time I see someone every time I see it at a library at a bookstore I see people online taking pictures of it I'm like I don't know that person and they're reading my book and then people around me are like you're an author though that's how that works and I'm like yeah but it's still really strange and so like every even awards and stuff like that it's just really sort of like oh wow I really deeply didn't expect that that's really cool and so it's like the opposite of expectations <laughs> which just makes everything that happens like really fun and I'm along for the ride and, and it's like low stakes just it is low happens, stakes, happens. honestly, because even though I'm like really hard on myself about the words themselves, everything that happens after, I feel so out of my league and so just in awe of everyone around me and in awe of all this cool work and all these awards and all these things. And so it's just been really, really fun. I feel like a kid at an amusement park. It's very cool. That's such a great way to describe it. And it, and it is such a weird process I think especially with first books and I know I had, I had this with mine as well 
when, like you said, people that you don't know are reading it where there's this moment where it's like, okay, I don't know you. You don't, you're not obligated to read my book. Like you're not my friend or my mom. No, how did you find it? Somehow you're my book. It's, it's such a strange experience. No, I don't know if that's ever going to go away. You only know me from the book. Like my thing that was in my head and now it's not just in my head is your first impression of me which is really really interesting and very strange because other people sort of can read the book with the context of knowing me in their mind or at least people who sort of know of me maybe from social media or things like that have an idea of who they think I am in their mind while reading it and they can kind of put pieces together or have judgments both good and bad and expectations both good and bad uh, when the work itself is people's first impression of me and is the whole of their impression of me those are kind of high stakes and because if someone doesn't like the book that's fine but then they're sort of like oh like I don't think their work as a writer is for me or it's just not good in general and I'm like oh no I want to want to help somehow but I'm powerless and that's what like authorship is I guess yeah and it's it's tricky too because there is like there's a very different kind of relationality when you have someone that who like you said who knows you who's reading your book versus someone who only knows you through the book oh, yeah. um and it's tricky too because it's not like you don't transform and change and take on voices and and change kind of the way that you're writing even or the topics that you're writing about over the years but oh, it's yeah. so tough when people don't know you and they pick up a book and yet like you said that one's just not for me and it's like but maybe the next one is <laughs> I mean but it's it, hard it, to it, get them back yeah it, it, it could also be really tough when people know you too though in a certain way because I've been finding that you know especially with fiction I started writing fiction I put out a fiction book before I had any other pieces of poetry or creative nonfiction published. Um, So my fiction work was kind of the only thing out there for friends and family to like consume and interpret in whatever way they felt comfortable interpreting. And so I sometimes from like friends or family or people who know me, I'll get a lot of questions about like, oh, does this character represent this person or does this event is this just like something that happened in your life and they're sort of making a lot of connections to personal things that really aren't even necessarily there but they just try to make those connections in order to make sense of it somehow it's like like I'll get family members who are sort of like look like I know that this character represents this person and I'm like it doesn't but like do they though yeah do they like really? do they actually or can I just make some art can it be a little yeah, more complicated than that right and then it's like like I can't even sort of one step past that is the creative nonfiction, which is a lot less nuanced still still complicated but a lot less assumption you, you can't sort of hide behind something creative in that same way sort of yeah it, it could be very difficult yeah no I can I can absolutely see that something that I was looking at I noticed there was the reading guide um, on the invisible website um, for the pump and in that um, you wrote that there was kind of one big question that you were working through within the book 
And that question is, how do we separate where we grew up from who we are? So something that I've been thinking about lately is how Gothic literature is rooted in place with all kinds of violence and trauma and kind of forms of dispossession that can get really tied down to those specific places. So considering that this hump is a small town, do you think that there's something kind of inherently gothic about small towns or something that kind of enables that kind of reading? Because I definitely feel that coming through in the book. And I think about um, how so many gothic works are named after places of like Haunting of Hill House and Monkey Beach and the pump of course, these kind of texts that are so deeply entwined with the places that they're set that they're named after them. So kind of returning to small towns, do you think that there's something just inherently gothic about small towns? Yeah, it's interesting. As you were asking that question, I was trying to sort of think in my head of like, why aren't cities as gothic? And I guess I was like, well, when you're rooted in the house and in the the place you live and its age and its history family history and lineage and history over time as as horror as gothic as complicated as carrying weight generationally i guess cities are just more transformative more conveyor belt ish places don't stay up for very long and it's definitely a a different kind of horror in that way like more of the site of the speculative and science fiction and stuff like that but in small towns in particular i think it's partially that rooted sense of history whether it be municipal history and trauma like a collective history and that like family history like i definitely found myself trying to balance in the book just as I was trying to balance kind of in my own life having only a few years earlier moved from my small town that I had lived in my entire life this balance between what was personal and familial and what was hidden from the world in terms of trauma but also the good the creative the good things in one's like lineage and history plus the collective traumas experienced within a town whether they were environmental whether it was like homophobia or racism or lack of access to the outside world and that sense of isolation it's a weird balance between those two things um In small towns, like, I found my experience to be pretty isolated from the outside world, even though we were, like, quite a large small town and not too far from city centers. Everybody pretty much knew each other, or it at least felt like everybody knew each other. And the the gaps between the upper middle class and those who lived below the poverty line seemed giant as someone who lived below the poverty line and so it was definitely there's a sense of this isolation where secrets brew just below the surface where everybody knows each other in a small town and everyone's talking but everyone's sort of talking not out loud but in these hushed whispers behind closed doors everybody's business is their own if you don't if you're sharing your traumas you're ruining the image of the town somehow and then your place of the town as someone open about their traumatic experience whether it be familial or within the town like as a whole socially um threatens that facade 
of the idyllic perfect pastoral small town image that people crave when they live in the city and people often talk about small town living this perfect everybody knows each other it's like the opening sequence in Beauty and the Beast when Val is kind of going through and there goes the baker with the wine. but it's <laughs> um it's really uh a lot of what it looks like on top and then the reality of it underneath right and that's really what the gothic is it's the secrets beneath your floorboards it's the the trauma behind closed doors and in hushed whispers whether it's by the town itself which is isolated from the outside world or by your family which is isolated from the rest of the town that's so fascinating because I just think so much of, of what I've read in the gothic it really is like you said kind of like the skeletons in the closet yeah um or like the mad woman in the attic of kind of like things aren't exactly as they seem and like you said too kind of that rural urban divide folks kind of in the urban idolize what happens in the rural and so many of these gothic texts are about like the family the nuclear family packs up their bags and they all go to live in the countryside for a bit and then that's where things exactly go so bad but when you're kind of in these places and embedded in those histories like you mentioned collective traumas that you experience in a town and when you have a sense of what those are and what that kind of generational history is like even if you can't talk about it without being mm-hmm. ostracized you at least know it and something that that I've been so curious about with the pump when I when I read so many of the stories there's so many interesting things that are happening and there's so many fascinating descriptions of water um, and the marsh specifically and I, I do want to get to the beavers next but there's kind of this sense of stickiness that I get with like the waters that are that are murky and you've got boy scouts that are getting lost in them and the water is kind of so thick that you can't see through it and I kind of read that as almost like a metaphor for the pump in that people kind of get caught in that stickiness. And there's kind of that that sticky way of holding on to violence and trauma. That was kind of what I was thinking. I don't know if that's a little bit of what you had in mind with the marsh and with that, that kind of water imagery. It's completely that. When I talk about this question of how do we separate where we come from from who we are, it's really less of how do we leave where we're from and more of a once we've left how do we get it off of us or how do we have a healthy relationship with it in any way that's not completely ripping it off of us and throwing it away and and ignoring it as this infectious sort of I picture like Marvel's Venom kind of like squishy little black stuff that like chumps on you and you have to tear it off right like it's your history is sticky and even if you manage to leave the place where where everything happened like i use this uh this alice monroe quote at the beginning of the pump that paraphrasing says something along the lines of there is the place where it happened and then there are all of the other places right so it even if you manage to leave this like place that in your mind is can't be anything other than the place where you experienced all of these things to separate yourself from it is this impossible task that so many of us are faced with when you visit somewhere and then leave it's very different from your entire sense of self being constructed both good and bad and complicated in this place right 
especially when it's this muddy mixture of both positive and negative and beauty and horror and personal history and collective history at the same time it's sort of like how do you begin to do that work of at first trying to separate yourself completely from that but then kind of reconciling with the fact that you're never going to be able to completely separate yourself from it because it's where you were like formed as a person and your personhood is so deeply tied to place but learning how to how to kind of reckon with it and think of it in a different way it can get really sticky and really muddy yeah because that just what you're saying too about that kind of idea of, of trying so hard to separate yourself from the place where you grew up and then having to reconcile that it is ultimately a part of you yeah. um, and will always be a part of you and in a moment where I feel that really strongly is just the last lines of the book this is kind of one of those second person passages where you say she drives away I do not know where she goes not to her father in the states not to her brother in the city it is somewhere she has never been before now somewhere else and I kind of I read that as there's kind of the hope of somewhere else but there's also an inevitability that the pump is going with her and even the fact that that the narrator at that point doesn't completely know where she's going there's kind of that question of like is she really going or is is a piece of her actually going to be stuck in the pump forever yeah it's like I think particularly when you grow up in a small town and you sort of decide okay I'm going to leave you can either sort of stay and assimilate or keep your difference hang on to your difference but leave um and if you've decided that your choice is leaving sort of becomes this desperation to break through the isolation and you're not sure where it is you're going it, it could be anywhere but anywhere is sort of good enough at that point because you're like i just have to get out and i'll figure it out after and then there inevitably is an after and there's a new chapter of your life that's different from the old chapter of your life but then you have to figure out what aspects of it you left behind and what aspects you brought with you and it becomes this really complicated um like rethinking of 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 who you are and who you were and who you want to be moving forward in your life I think that makes a lot of sense and I suppose another kind of reconciliation too that knowing if you do go back it's not necessarily returning to the place the same way that you left it. No, because exactly. you're returning different. You're returning different, and place is no longer like it's. Some places stayed oddly exactly as you left them, like a diorama kind of, and then some places change rapidly. And there's a lot of growth and a lot of gentrification, and a lot of the people that you knew before have either left or passed away or have changed themselves or a lot of you left and come back and all of you are different right and so it's this very um you can have a very interesting relationship with the place that you grew up particularly if it's a small town um and everyone's relationship with that place is going to look very very different and i've kind of only explored like a few different aspects of that relationship um, but there's so much more possibility there, I think, to explore. And definitely a lot of complexity yeah. in that exploration. 
Something that I do want to talk to you about, I mentioned the beavers because I just, there's so many moments in the pump with really fascinating animal imagery. Um, and I'm really fascinated specifically by moments when like different species intersect. So I love the beavers um, on their own, but there's this really interesting moment in Found, which is quite early in the collection. Um, there's a white cat that's bringing someone items, really creepy items like baby teeth and a rusted wedding band and metal bullets, which are so fascinating. And then eventually it brings her the body of another cat that is dead. But then at the end of the story, you say a beaver stands on its hind legs, the white cat dead in its mouth. So you kind of have this idea that there's like, there's one species of the cats that's kind of fighting with its own. And then you have the beaver as this kind of like super species that you said has been kind of like changed by by the tainted water supply that can then kind of dominate over the others. And, and the people in these stories interact with these beavers in such interesting ways and that some of them are rightfully very frightened and some of them are not nearly frightened enough. So I'm curious about how the beavers work in your writing in this kind of as metaphors, because there's moments, again, with these kind of interspecies kind of descriptions where the beavers are described as howling like wolves. So within kind of the way that you crafted this book and that you were thinking about animals and tying them throughout, what was kind of your intention behind those animals and how do you see them working? Did they surprise you maybe even as you were working on this book? The first drafts of some of the stories in the book and the first outline of the book um, didn't, didn't include beavers at all, actually, oh, interesting. which is quite interesting. Like the book was my fourth year thesis project for my English literature and creative writing undergraduate degree at Western. Um, and I had, I knew I wanted to make a short story collection. I knew I wanted it to be sort of small town based, interconnected stories, Southern Gothic, environmental issues. And the beavers sort of just kept popping up as a motif throughout despite me not having beavers in my small town where I grew up because it was this sort of contrast between I was writing about a lot of the aspects of my old small town while writing in London Ontario which has a completely different sort of landscape and different aspects of place and we had a lot of beavers there so I kind of found them creeping into creeping into the work and started shifting my research from what I had been researching before sort of into the beavers and the moment that I realized after having written sort of some mildly threatening stuff with them that in reality beavers are vegetarians I <laughs> knew immediately that I wanted to turn this Canadian symbol like on its head and I really thought it was a great opportunity to have this land that, you know, the municipality of the pump mistreats this land so much. They're pumping chemicals into the water and the water back into the land. But just in general, how much we as a society are mistreating our land, whether we're like stealing it and polluting it or doing exactly the same thing at the same time. Um, I wanted to give the land an opportunity to to get angry back, right? Like I really felt like we had done enough of the talking <laughs> as people. And I I really wanted the land itself to to have a sense of like, okay, like we're done with the violence 
it's time to enact violence or return the favor sort of in a way that was mostly devoid of of emotion and of devoid of of sense like i have a beaver in one of the stories talks but that's about as far as i went with the human traits of the beavers and even then it's quite it's quite like logical speak it's kind of devoid of emotion um and i didn't want to focus so much on giving humanity sort of sort of a chance to, to make more excuses if that makes sense yeah no that that is so fascinating and there's there's so much that i want to talk about there but i feel like those beavers in particular they're just they're so uncanny because it's that experience of seeing something that's so familiar and like you said just like this national symbol and keeping it as a beaver but then giving it this edge to it but like they're not vegetarians they're carnivores and not only are they carnivores they're very comfortable eating people but there really is kind of this symbol that's just doing so much work as with that motif of the beaver within that kind of sense of like the land talking back like you said and what I find really interesting there too is you kind of mentioned that it's devoid of any emotion and this is something I find really fascinating kind of within conversations of like the Anthropocene um, with this idea of the land talking back and that if the land talks back with any kind of agenda to like eradicate humanity or even any kind of emotion towards humanity that just repositions humanity back in the middle it's us as humans kind of being like well we're still the most important the land's only doing this for us whereas within that different kind of view that you're taking within the pump and within what you're saying it's kind of like the land is just talking back the land is doing what it does it's had enough but it's not necessarily even vindictive it's just that things have changed and the power balance has shifted I find yeah, that so interesting. Oh, it's like, I love this idea of after we're gone, after we have figured all our stuff out and inevitably eradicated each other, the land will be overgrown and lovely and healthy again. And I sort of, despite the book being so deeply also about personal relationships and people's relationships with one another, I thought as a as a platform and like a casing like over all of that uh, I, I wanted this narrative of always returning back to the land what had been taken from it very interesting so again a different kind of return uh, yeah you've got characters who are who are leaving and returning to the pump and then you've also got the land itself that has been exploited and violated uh, that can also kind of return to a previous self change obviously irrevocably but kind of returning to something that it may have once been what's interesting um, is yeah. that the last story of the pump was called return up until mm. about two weeks before the book was at the printers and then i changed it to home which is a different kind of return. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. What can I ask? What prompted that change? Yeah. The last line of the story was one of those kill your darlings moments where I had written a line that I would change the entire story, everything about the story itself, but I w w was refusing to change that last line. And then in my last sort of 
line edits and copy edits, I realized that the way I had written it didn't make sense for the story. Like right now, I think it's, we were on a ship going, going, going home or leaving home. Yeah. Like we were on a ship leaving home. It, It used to be like we were on a ship returning home and it didn't grammatically make sense for the story because they were going somewhere new and I had suddenly realized that way too late in the editing process but I was so obsessed with keeping that line for so long because it felt like no matter where these characters were going like almost like a magnet they were going to be drawn back somehow it always felt like they were just leaving at one point of a spiral sort of and that they would be on their way back at some point even if it wasn't distinctly in the narrative and so I think I was just even as it's the last story in the collection before the epilogue I had a lot of that sense of leaving and returning stuck in my head and found it difficult to part with even in the editing I I find the the language that you used of like a spiral really fascinating because there is that kind of image of like when you're when you're in a spiral like do you even know where along the edges you are and there's always that kind of possibility that the beginning of the spiral is just going to connect itself back to the end that there is that return that's like a return to something new but also familiar but also the potential for something completely different and these like cycles whether they're intergenerational or cycles within your own life or cycles of behavior or a place it really yeah I found it difficult to part with that image even even as I was editing I think it's it's hard to kill your darling it is like you said sometimes you you rewrite an entire story and the whole thing is different except Mm -hmm. for the one line Mm -hmm. that you just can't part with being an author is so weird because you you have what is actually written down and then you have your perception of the entire background of the entire story and everything that you thought and felt going into it and then your perception of the version of yourself that wrote it which was a long time ago for me in my very early 20s while I was still in school Um, and having all of that in addition to what's written there makes you think about everything in a different way than what everybody sees because you as the author like you have access to so much background and so much information and and so much more than the reader does whereas the reader just has that line and and they they bring their own interpretations to it but it's always going to be different from what you know about where that line came from exactly exactly something else that I'm curious about you mentioned the the epilogue because you do have those two kind of standalone sections with the prologue and the and the epilogue um, and those are both untitled and both of them have this image of your mother so it has this second person address which just really feels like it puts you right on the spot where you are reading about your own mother and in the prologue it says your mother does not want to move to the pump and then a second um, your mother leaves the pump And I'm wondering kind of within this idea of motherhood and how so many of the stories feature mothers, some of them good loving mothers, some of them bad mothers, some of them mothers trying their best. I'm wondering what it means to grow something in the pump 
like a child to nurture something. So on the back um, cover copy of the book, the pump is described as the swamp of the character's own mortality. So I'm so curious about this as a space of decay where there's also things that are growing with varying degrees yeah. of success. And I was wondering if you could talk about that for a bit. Yeah, so I wrote the prologue and the epilogue of the pump before I wrote anything. And before I even knew that the beavers were going to be involved, because I knew I sort of wanted to tell this story similar to my own personal story, where sort of a person was not from a small town, but moved to a small town out of necessity and was raising someone who had been, who was born and raised in the small town right and that contrast of being a fish out of water sort of noticeably different from everybody in the small town because you weren't raised there and then raising someone who was raised in that environment and that contrast and how you um how you navigate not losing aspects of yourself while being separate from the children you're raising and all these sort of questions like that and so it's a lot of the exploration was sort of of this divide between those who the pump is this sort of core part of who they are and those who are drawn in by it but can't leave yeah like I really with the mother narrative I think I really wanted uh, someone who had been drawn in in desperation to leave somewhere else but who couldn't leave because they were raising their child there who had such deep ties to place and that once their child left they finally had an opportunity to be like oh I guess I could leave I guess I probably could have left the entire time but just never realized that I could have because my sense of place was so strong it feels like a small town is keeping you there until you get an opportunity to leave and you're like oh I guess the door was always sort of open it's you just it's didn't know it at the time yeah yeah like I definitely my my mother moved to my small town when she was quite young to raise me in my family with my father um, and she was just learning English as a second language and had not grown up in a small town but I was growing up there. And then when I left for university, uh, she finally left that small town that she was so sort of at odds with, like after me. And so I definitely had her narrative in my mind while I was writing, because when I first started writing, she she actually hadn't left yet. And so I felt like in a way I could write her out. Even if you couldn't get her out in, in real life, you can write her yeah. out. I could write her out and then she did leave before the book was published. Okay. Which is an interesting bookend. Yeah. No, that's so fascinating. And just what I what I find so interesting about what you said too is just that kind of moving to the pump out of out of desperation. And I feel like the pump as kind of the people who are in the pump and like these corrupt governments and all of these horrible things, but also the pump itself as kind of an entity really just kind of cashes in on and exploits that kind of desperation and that there's people there who come because of the desperation and stay because the pump kind of keeps them in with that as leverage almost yeah yeah it's like the swampiness 
and the complications that come with everybody talking as if it's this idyllic place, but then being so isolated from resources. Like even if you think on a practical level, my small town, you you only had a few places you could work. There was no public transit. It was about a half an hour drive on the highway from the nearest mall, the nearest hospital, all these things, closest university. You had to leave in order to have a more accessible life if you didn't live above a certain yearly pay, right? And so it's, yeah, I I think on like a practical privilege level, it's easy to get sucked into these places and then you like very practically can't leave. <laughs> it, it, it's like some of the people in the pump chose not to leave. Some of the people in the pump left when they could. Some of the people like um, in the story, Vellum just couldn't leave. And I really wanted to have all of those perspectives. And particularly in that story, I really wanted to drive home this like, it's not from lack of wanting to or from lack of seeing how little resources you have that you can't leave. It's small towns now especially aren't built for people who live below the poverty line. Honestly, just in terms of accessibility, in terms of job access, public transit, like all these things, it's not just about staying because you want to. It really is who has the privilege to stay and who has the privilege to be able to leave after they've made, you know, an ecological and financial and social mess. Both those people can all leave. And then the people, the marginalized have to stay in the place that's been swampified yeah, right you get to stay in the marsh yeah I have one more question for you about the pump and then I want to talk to yeah. you a little bit about your chapbook this is kind of bringing a couple of your pieces together but I was reading a, a piece of yours that you recently published in Catapult where you're talking about Stephen King and specifically the novel It and I very much appreciated that you read this at eight years old as someone yeah. who also read <laughs> scary things too young yeah and loved that um, and something that you really zeroed in on in that essay that you wrote was that line from it that grownups are the real monsters. Something that I really see you playing with in the pump is kind of this idea of making things that are really ordinary and mundane scary. So we talked a bit about that with the beavers, but there's other things like Boy Scouts are not supposed to be scary, but they are. There's kind of this cultish feeling in barges, that early story where, where Maxie ends up going into the marsh. And there's kind of church youth groups, there's dentists that die, like there's all of these really ordinary everyday things that just take on these absolutely horrifying connotations. So I'm curious about what the intention is behind that and why in your writing in particular and in kind of gothic and horror literature more broadly, why do you think it's so effective to make the everyday things so scary? Yeah, I honestly, I really do think that it's less of this transformative thing, like you're taking something ordinary and you're transforming it into something scary and you're literally just tilting your perspective because it was always scary for people who don't have the same perspective or privilege as you, right? Like for, for some people, the home is a terrifying place where to other people it's not. For some people, institutions like school, like hospitals are an absolutely terrifying place of their most deepest 
traumatic experiences and for other people it's not I, I have PTSD and so like as someone who walks around with with a trauma disorder that warps your perception of everything around you and makes ordinary things ordinary senses like smells and auditory things when the ordinary world becomes the site for something much more terrifying flashbacks panic attacks all of these things you kind of you see the terrifying in the ordinary all the time and you're always sort of looking out for it and when you have so many so many trauma triggers are very mundane things even for people with very specific traumatic events that have happened to them and so it's it's definitely I think taking on that the perspective of someone who may have experienced the terrifying already in the everyday is I think what I was trying to do there no, that makes a lot of sense. And you just, you mentioned the home space. And I just think too, I just reading a lot of haunted house fiction, that's part of what makes haunted house fiction so effective is that it's this, this space of the home that is supposed to be comfortable and safe. And then like the language it used was tilting, which is just a really interesting way to kind of picture even like just shifting the lenses slightly. Yeah. And what I noticed lately with a lot of the haunted house fiction that I've been reading is it's particularly this idea of like children's bedrooms um, mm. and the nursery space as being kind of like the main locus of the haunting. And part of it, I think, is that there's just something fundamentally haunting and ghostly about childhood. Um, yeah. And that childhood is usually not this idyllic, wonderful place. It's this time where you're you're figuring out how the world works around you and you're figuring out, like, like you pulled out from it, that sometimes grown-ups are the real monsters and that these things that you think are safe are actually not safe. Like I mentioned the Haunting of Hill House earlier and just thinking about kind of the roots of the haunting within that book and how it's the nursery that the door is always locked until it isn't yeah. and it's the coldest room in the house because it's the site of like the biggest trauma that has taken place there so I, I love what you were saying that you're not making the everyday scary it's just scary it's just that some of us can see it and some of us just see the everyday mm. that's really fascinating thank you before I move on to other questions um is there anything else about the pump that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to yet. Hmm. I don't think so. I think we're probably okay. good. Excellent. Okay. So I did want to talk about your chat book, which came yeah. out in November, I believe. Yes. With 845 Press called The Last Thing I Will See Before I Die. It's a beautiful book, I have to say. Like it's bound so nicely. And it's a really lovely, like beautiful blue end papers and everything. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about this book because it's a pretty big departure from the pump just in terms of style even of going from prose to poetry and just a different kind of sparseness that comes with that I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about that book yeah so I had been writing the poems in that chapbook from like age 21 to recently and so some of them are early university poems some of them were pandemic poems some of them were poems before I had any r romantic relationships and some were in the thick of them. And so I sort of, I see the book itself as this, you know, like when you're about to, the trope that when you're about to pass away, like your life flashes before your eyes. 
sort of, I, I really saw the poem as different emotional moments in a confusing, complicated collage reel before going into the next phase of my life. It's like, I can, if I can express what's going on here, I can let it die and begin again, sort of. And kind of move on to something different. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, I, I love this chat book. There's, there's so much that's going on here. And one poem in particular, there's so many that are so great. But one in particular that I really, really liked was Horses. And I was curious, partly, I think why I liked it so much was it felt like a bit of a departure from the rest of the poems in the, in the chat book. And like you said, kind of viewing it like like a real and um, kind of like a collage of a different assemblage of things. Um, but Horses just had a really interesting amount of white space. And it had a dedication as well. Um, so those are two things that you kind of zero in on. It's just like, this is something different. And it's one of the longer poems um, in the chapbook, if not the longest. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about that white space. Because yeah. I, I caught myself when I was reading it, going from top left on one page to top right on the other page before I even mm. noticed that there was text down below. And what I found really fascinating with that is that it kind of creates these different ways of, of reading the poem. And this is always the challenge of being a writer is you, you give someone a poem and you can't tell them how to read it. Yeah. They read it the way they're going to. People read books back to front. So I was curious about how you were kind of working with the white space and with the actual like formation on the page in this piece, because it just, it does feel quite different from the other ones that are in the chat book. Yeah, so this poem in particular is pretty interesting because I I wrote it before I wrote any of the other poems in the chapbook. I had written Horses while in early university. It was one of the first sort of like, like I had written a lot of angsty teenage poetry and then told myself I couldn't write poetry and would stop. And then forced myself when I was 19 to write one poem every day for 365 days and horses is one of those poems and at the time I honestly I didn't even like I had to write so many poems that I would just ask my roommates like what should I write a poem about because I was not even looking for inspiration at that point just trying to go through the motions and learn how to write poems badly so I could learn how to write them well and I had a roommate who said, horses, I like horses. You should write a poem about horses. And so I wrote a lot of different pieces of this poem and left it for a long time. And then while I was assembling the chapbook, years later, I came back to this poem and reading through it, I had a really interesting experience because at that point, I hadn't been diagnosed with my dissociative disorder, which comes with a lot of memory problems, blocks in time, like lost time and I had read through it and I realized like wow like I was really experiencing a lot of my my first early symptoms of lost time and identity confusion and all of these things while I was writing this but I didn't understand what they were this is so fascinating and I had written each piece completely separately almost almost as this perfect representation of lost time in between and so I left a lot of white space between sections that I wrote at different times, sort of in order to mimic that lost time that I experienced. Because while reading it, even if I fully connected everything, I wouldn't be able to 
connected as a whole because in my mind it's like years in between some of those sections and I felt like that representation helped carry me from stanza to stanza that's so interesting just what you're saying about about trying to make them connect and in some ways they just never will like you said with lost time like they're just fundamentally completely disparate things and the white space is just a good kind of visceral way to show that because I mean like I said like when I was reading it when I realized that I'd kind of missed parts at the bottom I had this discomfort and this kind of moment of like oh my god I'm reading this poem wrong which there is no <laughs> wrong way <laughs> but, yeah but it's just interesting to have that moment that says like oh no I missed something I need to go back yeah. and find it and yeah. then that just kind of ties back in with the white space and just mimics that experience of, of that lost time so it's, it's completely incredible and fascinating that you can kind of experience that and convey that to the reader through that kind of white space and even if the reader can't say exactly what that experience is there's a discomfort that comes yeah. with that yeah i i definitely like i i think some people who who prefer a very comfortable reading experience are completely correct in their own way and then people who prefer an uncomfortable reading experience are also correct it's a very subjective thing i personally love nothing more than to read a book and to be so deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> it nothing brings me more joy than to feel absolutely attacked and have to rethink my entire life after reading something. And so yeah. like like I it's just why I do a, a lot of the second person stuff. It just like oozes uh, discomfort and oozes like self exploratory stuff, but you know a lot of the even though the white space was intentional, a lot of the the disconnect between sections was just born out of having written the poem at that time in my life that was so confusing. And I wouldn't have been able to make the poem what it was if I if I hadn't done it like accidentally first. Those kind of happy accidents where it just yeah. it is what it is and then it turns out to be exactly what it needs to be. Yeah. I'm just curious too. I completely I'm I'm on the same page as you just with like I would rather read a book that makes me like deeply uncomfortable and wrecks me yeah. um than something that makes me feel kind of cozy and comfortable. And the second person absolutely does that. It kind of just puts you right on the spot and and really just kind of like you said, it oozes into you. So I'm just curious, what's the last book that you read that made you really uncomfortable in a good way? The last book that I read that made me uncomfortable. Oh my gosh. Right now I'm reading this book called Pen Pal by Daniel Arbaugh. And it's like a a horror novel. I think it came out in early 2012. Um, And it's making me deeply uncomfortable. Not because everything that happens is so like outrageous and like comically horrific and gory or anything like that. There's just this sense of dread that pours through the entire book. And the the main character talks about childhood things that are so weirdly relatable that as I've been reading it, I've come, like, just going through life with a disorder that impacts your memory is interesting, like, in itself. And sometimes when I read really realistic, uncanny descriptions of childhood um, in books, it's not just because it's uncanny it ends up being something I didn't even remember about my own childhood and so it's this like extra level of uncanny valley (laughs) sort of Um, just layers and layers 
Yes. And so quite a few moments while reading that book, just by like a, a description of walking in the woods with a childhood friend, a description of going down a street, going for a swim, all these like oddly mundane yet sort of creepy and uncanny things ended up triggering mundane memories that I didn't even remember like as I'm sort of growing older trying to piece together a semblance of an entire life read like the books that are most interesting to me are books that accidentally sort of do that work for me and this book has been doing a lot of that accidentally but still really cool that's interesting too because it's, it's like we talked about earlier but there's there's things as an author that you just can't account for yeah um like there's probably people who, who are reading the pump and having a similar experience of just something oh, yeah. about yeah. about that like uncanny childhood of, in a small town yeah um and and part of it is that there are just kind of those those common experiences that most people who grew up in a small town will have and then every now and then there's just something so familiar and so odd and it feels so uncomfortable that somebody else might have experienced that too and then the process of remembering that just like a triple oh. layer of uncanny. Oh, it's really strange and what has been the absolute strangest has been you know because the pump itself is like physically based off of a real place the town I grew up in I some like I read my Goodreads reviews online I probably shouldn't but uh, I will once every 10 or 20 you get someone who's like I grew up in the pump and you're like oh no you're like oh gosh I didn't even change the street names this is not oh, gonna be like good. not you you can't read but then like please not you but I haven't gotten someone yet who grew up there who hated the book I've gotten a lot of people who grew up there and who went like I I understood the book on a level that a lot of other people didn't because of that collective trauma type of thing it's like I can tell that stories about like the train accident that happened in such and such I can tell that that is about that convenience store that shut down because of this blah 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 and there's this extra layer of town lore that goes into it that most of the people reading the pump wouldn't even realize because it's specific to the place as a lot of small towns are um but I found it interesting that people read that experienced that and liked it rather than found it to be exposing for them and it's interesting because you could see it going either way like yeah you said, it could be exposing definitely. of like that's dirty laundry that we don't want to yeah air or could be kind of validating in a different way in that it's like oh this is shared history this is a memory that more than just I have and that's just an interesting process of kind of that collective memory that places and the communities have and hold and that you have enough people to tell enough stories over a long enough period of time and then like you said you have lore yeah and then and then you get a process with the pump where there's a retelling of the lore so again layers and layers and then as someone who grew up there that would just be fascinating to read kind of looking for clues almost and kind of digging to see what what you could find I feel like that would be a really interesting process because it's a great read even not having grown up in that small town and I feel like it'd be just even more fascinating to read it to kind of pick apart in that way probably very strange because you can very legitimately go on a pump tour because every place is a real place like like I broke into that salt dome as a teenager did you make snow angels in the salt dome yeah oh it's like <laughs> 
apart from the beavers and the stealing of blood from surgery theaters, like most of it happens. Apart from the blood, <laughs> which apart is from good. the stealing blood, and yeah, it's possible it could happen. It just didn't happen. I don't know. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> which is good. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. um, I've kind of got two really kind of open questions that I just want yeah. to wrap up with. This has been such a lovely conversation. But I'm curious to you, just because I mentioned at the very beginning that you do work in those different genres of like fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction, in that you're kind of equally as versed in prose as you are in, in the poetic voice. And I'm just wondering if those feel like separate practices to you, or do you feel like they kind of cross over and, and intersect in different ways? It's interesting to hear you say that you think that I'm as well versed in prose as I am in poetry, because in my head, I see poetry as like the impossible form. Like, I feel like I'm trying so hard. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things that doesn't, for some people, I think it comes very naturally. For me, I love poetry. I have to write poetry no matter how difficult it is. It feels like tearing my own hair out to get a poem out and I'm psychologically and physically exhausted afterward and completely drained but it feels like something that's very necessary work it's like going to therapy like writing a poem is like I need to immortalize this moment in time and explain it and only a poem can explain this particular thing I'm not the person to write it why do I have to write this why can't I just put my idea into a Google Doc for some great writer to pick it up and explain it for me because they don't have my perspective. So I, they can't do it exactly how I see it, but like, I can't write it as well as they can. So I, <laughs> I feel like poetry is very difficult. Prose is also very difficult, but I feel like it's, it's difficult in a different way. In a different way. I, I don't know. Poetry, I feel like I write poetry because I have to. I write a lot of prose because I want to, if that makes sense. No, that does. I, I, I understand that distinction. And I think I think some of it, that kind of difference comes down to access in that sometimes, and, and as someone who writes poetry and prose as well, sometimes I have an easier time accessing what I need to write in poetry. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like I'm pulling teeth out of my head. Um, and other times it's kind of the same thing, but in reverse, where sometimes it's just easier to get something out in poetry than it is to get it out in prose. But you described it as, as necessary work. And I, I find that really interesting that it's kind of like you don't totally have a choice in the matter. No. Um, and that's that's just a weird thing to reconcile with as as a writer. Like you described it as kind of like an impossible art form. And and I and I feel the same so often in my own poetry writing that even though it is that way, it doesn't mean that I don't write a ton of bad poems trying to get that oh, yeah. <laughs> figured out and trying to get to the other side of that where I can kind of have that flip where I say, okay, no, now I'm in my poetic mode and now I'm comfortable mm -hmm. and now I'm really going to struggle with prose. So it's it's interesting to kind of have that that drive to do something that is so difficult, but that you just have to do. It's it's non-negotiable. Well, it's like, it really, I never feel like I perfectly encapsulate what I'm trying to to capture in a poem. I never feel like I've edited a poem enough where I'm like, this captures the moment exactly how I want to. I frequently read other people's poems where I'm like, you have captured this moment perfectly. There is nothing wrong with this. This is amazing. You are amazing. 
but with my own poetry for some reason I feel like I'm trying to encapsulate a moment or a feeling or a complication a swamp of things and I can never quite get there I can only ever get close enough and uh, I'm just trying to get close closer and closer to to close enough not because I'm sort of don't want to see it to fruition and don't want it to be a representative of what I'm trying to write but because I've like fallen down unconscious in an inch from the finish line with a poem and I'm not in a place yet where I can quite get there but I can get I can get to that close enough the close enough representation and sometimes close enough is as close as you get yeah and and, often, and that's something often. that I think we're all kind of working on is, is learning how to be okay with close enough yeah um, and learning how to be satisfied with that work, even if it's never going to be, like you said, like a perfect encapsulation. And I so often have the same thing where I feel like other people's poems are these magical little little moments that they've captured perfectly. Oh and mine never feel like that. But I also know that they also probably feel like those are, those are as close as they're going to get without being all the way there. So I think we're all doing the same mental cycles here. <laughs> the funniest thing ever is to be at panels with other authors and every author has their book in front of them and a pen and as they are reading out loud they are editing the published in the book prose they are <laughs> editing it live and yeah. remembering what they edited by crossing it out in the book with a pen I have been on panels where every one of us is doing it at the same time I never don't see this happen editing a published book if we got to decide how much editing happened our books would never go out into the world like they They'd would never, never be ready be. they never are they never are it's true it's a continual whole life process of editing even now like I read parts of the pump and I skip out words while I'm reading and I skip out sentences <laughs> because it, it's not done yet yeah. still even if it's like I'm over editing it and I'm making it worse by my over editing it's still not done somehow because I've mm. changed and the world has changed around it and this thing hasn't changed it should be moving and changing with me <laughs> so. and it should be and I and I always kind of wish that there was I don't know I don't I have no idea what this would look like but a way that they could grow with us because there is always that moment when you're reading older work and it's like okay this isn't quite how I would write it if I was writing it now but I don't get to write it now I already wrote yeah. it it's bound in a book I don't get to do much about it but you do get to take out your little pen and edit it yeah. on stage it's kind now. of good though <laughs> in a weird way it's like if a time capsule could change with us it wouldn't be interesting enough to open if a photo changed great. with us we wouldn't feel nostalgia over that moment no, it has to be right? captured like, there has to be something moment there in time. that yeah exactly Exactly, because otherwise there wouldn't be anything to feel nostalgic about. It would just no. be growing with us. And but it's it's always funny because I've talked to so many writers about this. Where you, you have you have stories or poems that were published years ago, and it's like, God, I wish that wasn't published. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. The last question that I want to ask you is just what's coming up next for you. Is there anything yeah. that you're excited about that's on the horizon? Yeah. So my first novel comes out next spring officially spring 2024 my first novel bird suit comes out and then a year later 
fall 2025 my first book of essays bad kids will be out so it feels like a long time away but it will come up very very quickly and I will suddenly go from having one book to three books and even though it's slow I know I will blink and it will just be here you'll blink and the copies will be in your hand oh my you'll goodness be at a panel even, crossing uh, out words. oh yes already yeah no, I'm very, I'm so excited for for both of your your forthcoming books. And like you said, like you blink an eye and before you know it, two years have gone by and hopefully we're not in the pandemic times. Oh my gosh, and I can like out. read it out loud to people and, and like a sign a copy, meet yeah. a person. I know, how yeah. exciting would that be? Be within six feet of somebody and not feel wow. super uncomfortable. <laughs> very thought of that I know it's both exciting and completely terrifying oh yeah I don't know if I'm ready for it at this point I'm definitely not right now but we'll see I could change (laughs) maybe by spring 2024 things will be better yeah (laughs) Um, but I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today it's been a real pleasure talking to you about your work and about what's coming next for you there's so many interesting threads that are happening throughout the pump and your chat book. And I'm just thankful for the opportunity to get to pick some of these apart with you. So thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Amy. And we didn't get to talk about your haunted house dissertation, which I totally wanted to bring up. Forgot about, but I was like, I want to talk about, about the haunted houses. And I was so glad that you at least snuck in some haunted house conversation because I sneak it into I- every conversation. <laughs> I I love it so much and I'm so interested in your work and I'm so grateful that I got to chat with you today. Well, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Sydney Hegley by Amy LeBlanc. I'm Ben Berman-Gan, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chair Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Jilin, Mahmoud Ababni, Ryan Stern, Shu Yin Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafif Ramji, Ben Berman Gan, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by a Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.